This is KJZZ, your news and information station. We're on air, online, and on your phone. I'm Tiara Vianne. Let's look now at this week's stories you don't want to miss. It's the podcast designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of June 12th, 2023. The housing market in Phoenix has been booming in recent years, but Arizona now faces a stark reality. There may not be enough water to sustain the kind of rapid development the region has been seeing. But even as the state takes steps to rein in the sprawl, some in the real estate business say growth isn't coming to a stop. Catherine Davis-Young reports. Cindy Reddy has been a real estate agent in Arizona for more than 20 years. She's showing me a two-bedroom that just went on the market at $445,000. With demand like it's been, she expects she'll be able to sell it within a couple weeks. They've redone the flooring, they've added the, the crown molding, they've done painting and new shutters. And, uh, We're in, in the, the suburb of Surprise, about 45 minutes northwest of downtown Phoenix. This was kind of the outskirts of town, and actually now it's really not. It's, it's just continuing to expand out west. But there's some question now of how much more these suburbs will be allowed to expand. To build a house in most of Arizona, developers have to show there's enough water to last that property 100 years. But this month, Arizona's governor said groundwater in the Phoenix area may fall short within a century and announced the state would no longer approve construction in places where groundwater is the only option. Adam Baugh, a land use attorney here, says a New York Times article about the plan made some of his clients really nervous. I think the first paragraph was like looming trouble in the West. And the other one was likely means the beginning of the end. (laughs) Ba says water scarcity is a real concern in a desert megalopolis. But it also doesn't mean the sky is falling. The governor does not plan to cancel about 80,000 outstanding development projects across the Phoenix area. And development in places with access to surface water or reclaimed water will be allowed to continue too. But most new home construction around Metro Phoenix is happening at its far edges, where land is cheaper and suburbia meets raw desert. And those are the areas where the groundwater issue is is the most serious and pronounced. Mark Stapp is a longtime developer who directs the real estate development program at Arizona State University. He predicts the limits will mean building will turn back inward, closer to Phoenix's core, since longer established cities have more secure water portfolios. We're going to have to stop and think about how we're going to continue to develop. But land use attorney Adam Baugh says shifting from continued suburban sprawl to infill development comes with its own challenges. There's a built-in environment already. Neighbors around you, street limitations, drainage considerations, utility access. There's a reason why they're some of the last sites left over. Baugh and Stapp both say the new groundwater policy doesn't require halting all construction. In fact, they say developers will have to find a way to keep building. Phoenix was America's second fastest growing city city last year, and demand for housing statewide already outstrips supply by about 270,000 units, according to the state government. Realtor Cindy Reddy says it's one of the reasons home prices in Metro Phoenix have been recently among the fastest rising in the country. So what's happened over the last five years is that we've had 
more buyers than we have property. That's really the reality of what we've been dealing with. And she's not expecting news of Arizona's water troubles to scare those buyers away. I think people are always going to want to live in Arizona. We have sunshine. We have beautiful, you know, hiking trails and biking trails and, you know, golf and tennis. She says the desert lifestyle continues to be a pretty easy sell. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Fronteras News, the wall at the U.S.-Mexico border has long been a source of controversy for its political message, impacts on the environment, and costs, among other things. But for a group of children in a small Sonoran town, it's also become a canvas. From the Fronteras desk, Kendall Blust reports from the border wall in Naco. Three young painters help load a pickup with paint cans, ladders, and folding tables outside of Studio Mariposa, a youth art center in Naco, Sonora that opened in 2017. We do anything that's fun, colorful, and that kids enjoy doing. <laughs> that's studio director Gretchen Bear. Every Tuesday afternoon, some 80 children in this small town gather for art classes in the vibrantly painted art center. And on Saturdays, they paint the border wall. All right. We drive around the corner to drop off the supplies in front of a few rusty brown steel beams. We have just that little bit left on the far end that we haven't done. It's a really important area, I think, because it's the closest to the port of entry we've ever painted. The rest of the wall, as far as the eye can see, has been covered with bright paint, glitter, and mosaics. I think it's empowering. It's empowering for anybody, but I think it's especially empowering for kids that live here on this side to take something that's ugly and redefine it as something that could be beautiful. Walking along the half mile of painted wall that extends to the eastern edge of town, she points out paintings of giant fruit, cheerful minions, and an illusion that can be created using the bollards. If you see here, it's a green apple and green eyes, right? And then you walk and suddenly a red apple and blue eyes. Bear lives in nearby Bisbee, but has been driving across the border to do art projects in Naco since 2010. Back then, her project was called Border Bedazzlers. At first, it was a political statement, pushing back on negative stereotypes about the border region. It really wasn't intended as a kid's project, but it immediately became one. Because when kids see something fun, paint being splashed onto a big wall like this, they wanted to join in. They painted the wall for six years. Then in 2016, they learned that it would be torn down and replaced with this bollard-style wall, with 18-foot-tall steel beams spaced about four inches apart. Bear didn't want to paint it. Instead, she turned her efforts to Studio Mariposa. But during the pandemic, she says the kids needed more fun outdoor projects. So last year, they came back to the wall. Today, about a dozen kids are here, some using flat bristle brushes to paint fine details on their designs, others painting wide strips of purple, blue, and yellow with long-handled rollers. They tease each other and splatter paint on their faces and clothes. Ten-year-old Alexia Miranda says painting helps her relax, and painting the border wall is especially fun. Los turistas de Estados Unidos vienen y dicen, wow, qué bonito está el muro. She likes to see the surprise on people's faces when they visit from the U.S. De este lado está colorido, está muy bonito, y del otro lado está mm, muy café oxidado. In Naco, Sonora, she says, the wall looks colorful and beautiful. In the U.S., where painting isn't allowed, it's brown and rusted. We are altering the bodyscape. We're making it 
something different. Elisabeth Ballet is a professor at the University of Quebec in Montreal studying border barriers around the world. She's visiting NACO today to help paint the wall, one of many projects at the U.S.-Mexico border and around the world that use art as a form of activism, she says. Border art is definitely an act of resistance. For Deborah Sierra, it's a show of unity. Somos países hermanos. Inaco. We're sister countries, she says, gesturing toward a huge painting of North America with giant wings. And Naco Sonora and Naco Arizona are neighbors. She spent most of her life in a house just south of the border, facing the wall. Now her kids and grandkids live there. She likes this project because it makes their view a little nicer. And because it's something positive for local kids to do. As the day winds down, a few kids wash up paintbrushes while others grab spray bottles and start a water fight. (laughs) It's been a fun afternoon, but Bear says there's also a lesson here. For us, we're not going to knock down this wall as much as I'd love to. (laughs) I don't personally have that power. She says it's the same with life. So many things are not something that we can control every bit about. So what's the best way you can take it and turn it into something positive? For her, at least, the answer is art. (laughs) Kendall Blust, KJ's Z News, reporting from NACO. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In business news... In exchange for funding, Phoenix leaders want more information from the state's largest emergency homeless shelter. As Christina Estes reports from our downtown bureau, the city council discussed how to hold Central Arizona Shelter Services more accountable. The plan focuses on conservation measures like using drought-tolerant and native plants, restricting grass that's not used for recreation, and participating in the city's efficiency checkup program. While leaders emphasize Phoenix has enough water to serve current and future customers for 100 years, Mayor Kate Gallego says all city departments are focused on conservation. We understand the urgency and that this is a precious resource in the desert, even though we have managed supplies such that we can continue to welcome new residents and and jobs to our community. The plan also requires future large water users to submit a conservation plan. Large users mean at least 250,000 gallons daily. Right now, Phoenix has about 20 large water users, including the city, resorts, hospitals, and bottling plants. Councilwoman Betty Guardado urged staff to include current users in the plan. I think it's important um, to be able to hold everyone accountable on this, and hopefully um, all these other companies can also um, come in and help out in whichever way that they can. She offered to contact current large water users to encourage conservation efforts. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Now from the show team, let's meet the astronomer behind the sound of a black hole. Here's co-host Mark Brody with former host Steve Goldstein. Steve, let's hear a sound now that has been described as a cosmic horror. Oh, okay. I'm a little worried, but I guess let's hear it. Okay, Mark, I'm freaking out. It feels like I'm staring into the abyss of the universe. Don't freak out, but you're not that far off. That is actually the sound of a black hole. 
the black hole at the center of the galaxy Perseus, to be more exact. NASA released the remixed sonification earlier this month, and the Internet pretty much went wild. The clip on Twitter alone has now been streamed almost 17 million times. Kimberly Arcand is the scientist behind it. Her official title is Visualization Scientist and Emerging Tech Lead for NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory. And she told our co-host Lauren Gilger it's a misconception that there's no sound in space. So in order for you to hear sound, there has to be a medium for that sound to travel to your eardrum, essentially, right? And so in much of space where there's just empty space, there's no medium for that sound wave to travel to you. However, there are corners of the galaxy, corners of the universe, where there is enough material, such as hot gas in a cluster of galaxies, where the pressure waves are essentially turning into sound waves. And if you take that sound wave, you can figure out what essentially the pitch is and then sonify it. And there we go. We can hear something about outer space. Wow. Okay. So tell us a little bit about the background of this particular sound from this particular black hole. It sounds like this was something that NASA had had for some time, but you actually made audible more recently. Yeah, so the original research came out of uh, Andy Fabian's team back in like 2003 and was a really just fantastic result uh, that showed that this supermassive black hole in the Perseus cluster of galaxies was essentially belching out into the cluster and causing these these pressure waves, these sound waves. And I've always loved that that result. I've always thought it was such a cool story and or hot story, I guess, since we're talking like extreme (laughs) (laughs) x-rays, but I've always loved it. And so when we started our our sonification project, I thought this particular object would be really one worth diving into because it was representative of sound already with these sound waves that had been captured. Um, in the image based on the light that had been received by Chandra. And Mm. yeah, sure enough, when we, when we did that translation, that sort of bespoke um, creation of this sonification, it's, it really captured people's imagination. And I've been very excited just to see or hear uh, the public response Mm -hmm. to it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is part of the sonification project that you're a part of that's bigger. Um, Tell us exactly when we listen to this, what we're hearing, like this is, This is a sound wave traveling through something. Tell us how this works. Mm -hmm. So the process of sonification is like a a mathematical mapping, if you will. We're using some coding, like um, some Python coding to be able to create the result of that mathematical mapping. And then we're bringing it into like a sound engineering software package to be able to tweak that last bit of sound. So in order to create the sound, what we've done is essentially extracted Um, those sound waves from the image and made them audible. So those waves, those sound waves that I mentioned, they're propagating out. And to be able to really showcase them beautifully, we had a 360 degree kind of sweep around the image that you can hear sort of each and every corner of that. Um, And this sound, this is like, you know, some of the lowest pitches that we've ever found. Um, so we had to scale them way, way up by about 57 and 58 octaves above their actual pitch uh, so that we could hear them because those those low sounds are way below what humans can hear, like, you know, 600 keys below um, what humans can wow. hear. So when you did this process and you were able to listen to it for the first time, what was your reaction? Mm. What did you think? 
Um, first, I was just <laughs> super excited. Um, like I, I, I literally hopped out of my chair. I just thought it was the coolest <laughs> thing. And, and you know, it's funny because there's been so much reaction from people online, like saying it's like scary or spooky or yeah. you know, sounds like a horror soundtrack. And I do not hear that, but maybe it's because I, I know and love this object. I have known it for so long, I guess. <laughs> but it is, to me, just a beautiful sound. I, it just, at the end of the day, I, I think I love this concept that there are these black holes out there in the universe, supermassive black holes, you know, just uh, singing these notes out. Because it's not just this one supermassive black hole is doing it. This is the one that we have this fantastic data of that we can recognize these sound waves and then translate them into sound yes but there are other black holes that are doing this as well and just yeah the fact that there is like the symphony of sound going on but mm -hmm. we just can't hear it it's pretty pretty amazing <laughs> it is really cool i mean so that's sort of mind-blowing you the way you talk about a black hole right like it's like it's alive yeah. Well, you know, I think black holes have a bad rap. I think there's this idea <laughs> that there are these just like cosmic vacuum cleaners going around sucking everything up and that they're scary. But I mean, you know, things that do fall into a black hole, I wouldn't want to be it. That's that's a whole level of spaghettification that I'm not interested in approaching. But <laughs> for the most part, you know, these black holes, they're they're in their orbits, they're doing their thing, and they are the biggest cosmic recycling centers. They are responsible mm. for the care and feeding of the galaxies in which they live. So they're part of the cycle of life, quite literally. But aren't they sort of the death part of that cycle of life? <laughs> <laughs> Well, some of it is, but some of it isn't exactly. So, you know, because there are black holes do, you know, things fall in, yes. Um, but there are also yeah. things that happen where the black hole is essentially, you know, spewing out material into the galaxy. And that material um, can help stir up new generations of stars, of, of planets, of people, perhaps, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about death. <laughs> There's life there too. Fair enough. Okay, okay. So you talked about the kind of crazy reaction in the social media world and beyond that this sound has elicited and how you don't really agree with this idea that it sounds like cosmic <laughs> horror or, you know, something really like awful and, and deadly. What does it sound like to you? You had a really beautiful way of describing this. Yeah, I mean, I'm a sort of classic classical kind of girl here. I, I grew up singing in choirs and, and played instruments and all that. So yeah, for me, it it makes me reflect on the work of people that I really admire, like Eric Whitaker, just a super talented composer who creates these beautiful choral pieces, or of course, Hans Zimmer, right? Like there are these lovely soundtracks that it sort of makes me feel reminiscent of, but just, you know, much more dark and dramatic and moody perhaps than than you might think. So I'm I'm more the fan of like the Hans Zimmer sort of translation of this, not the Michael Myers <laughs> translation. <laughs> All right, Hans Zimmer it is, fair enough. That is Kimberly Arcand, visualization scientist and emerging tech league for NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory, joining us to talk more about the sound of black holes. Kimberly, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In science news, here's Nicholas Gerbis.
Scientists must sometimes, as William Blake put it, see the world in a grain of sand. Now, a nature astronomy sample analysis from the asteroid Itakawa has seen a possible source of Earth's water in a crystal of salt. There's just no substitute for slipping the surly bonds of Earth and sampling a space rock. If we relied solely on telescopes, we'd still think asteroid Bennu was a rubble pile instead of an electrostatic dust bunny. And if we were limited to falling space rocks, we might never have learned that seemingly dry silicate asteroids might have delivered water to an infant Earth. Senior author Thomas Zega of U of A. It adds another dimension to the possibility that these types of asteroids could have also been sources of water that was delivered to the early Earth. Prior to the discovery, experts believed water arrived aboard comets or on a different class of asteroid from the frigid outer solar system. But Itakawa's sample contains tiny salt crystals that could only have formed in the presence of liquid water. Nicholas Skirbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in education news. A federal appeals court has reinstated a lawsuit against the University of Arizona. Elisa Resnick reports the suit was originally filed in 2019 by a former student-athlete. Michael Grabowski was recruited to the U of A's track team. His suit alleged he was subjected to daily sexual and homophobic bullying by his teammates, who perceived him as gay. His suit also says coaches and athletic leaders did not intervene to stop the bullying. The case was dismissed by a federal judge in Arizona, but Grabowski's legal team appealed, arguing he should be protected under Title IX, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex or sexual orientation. This week, the three-judge appeals court panel ruled that Title IX protections also cover harassment on the basis of someone's perceived sexual orientation. The ruling reinstates parts of Grabowski's original suit. Elisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.